night that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we we do give you thanks for your word. We do recognize that if we are to understand it, even as we read it, we have to have your Spirit's help. We have to have you, by your Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts, uh, enabling us to receive what it is that you would have for us. And so having read your word now as we come to this business of the preaching of your word, we plead once again for your spirit. Grant us your spirit, for you have something for each of us this day. And you have that something because you love us and you want us to be nourished and fed. So come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and grant us this gift we ask in your name. Amen. It's, um, it is good to be with you. Uh, it's been a while since I've been here. You've done something to the building. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, I, I don't know if it's because of the hard surfaces or if you all really do sing as well and as loudly as it seems you do, um, but it's just wonderful to hear your voices this morning. Um, Chuck and I have known each other. Chuck, Melissa, and I have known each other for a long time. Chuck is a very, very dear friend, and so I'm, I'm very, very honored, very pleased uh, to be able to be uh, with you this morning. And I do want to say thank you. Um, some of you, I hope all of you know that you are now partners with a ministry that I've been involved with uh, for some 20 years called Transforming Tanzania. It was, it was thrilling for me to hear this morning uh, what uh, Josh is doing in Uganda um, because your partnership with uh, this little ministry is accomplishing some very similar things just across the lake in Tanzania, uh, where the need for water, both literal physical water uh, and the word of life water uh, is very, very great. So thank you. Uh, John has been a great help. Chuck has been a great encouragement in this. Uh, thank you for partnering uh, with our little ministry. It's making a huge, huge difference. I suppose every one of you um, has had an experience that has left you speechless, left you uh, in awe, uh, left you stunned. If you've, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, maybe that's done it. If you've been uh, in the Rockies at 13 or 14,000 feet, maybe that's done it. If you've uh, been to Switzerland or Austria and, and seen the Alps, maybe that's done it for you. I had the occasion with Barb 
a number of years ago to go to Austria. We ended up in the Pinskow Valley in a little village called Mittersill. And early one morning, I got up, hiked across the valley, and climbed one of the peaks just on the other side uh, of, the, of the little village, uh, an elevation change of about 5,000 feet. It was a perfectly clear day. There was not a cloud in the sky. And when I got to the top, I just I couldn't take it in. Uh, and, I, and I suspect you've had experiences like that, or maybe it's been uh, a work of art or a piece of music, uh, maybe. You know, there's that, that great scene in the film Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne uh, plays uh, that duet from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. He broadcasts it across uh, the whole of the prison through the prison PA system, and it stops everybody in their tracks. And, and Andy's good friend, Red, as he reflected upon that experience, has this little soliloquy in which he says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. <laughs> Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. Something so beautiful that it makes your heart ache because of it. I think that's what you have in the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, there's that greeting in the first couple of verses and then there's that one long sentence that is filled with all these incomprehensible and breathtaking truths. Think about it. Think about what he has said. Loved from before the foundation of the world. In time, redeemed, rescued, delivered by the precious blood of Jesus. And then sealed with the spirit, marked by the king with his signet if you will, the Holy Spirit ensuring that you are his possession, that you belong to him. And as you sang just a few minutes ago, if I can find my bulletin somewhere in all of this mess, you just, you actually just sang Ephesians chapter one. Free and changeless his favor, all is well. Precious is the blood that heals us. Perfect is the grace that sealed us Strong the hand stretched forth to shield us. That's Ephesians 1. And these truths that Paul has enumerated, has articulated, it's not hard to imagine that it took him some time to compose that. We understand the scriptures ultimately uh, are authored by God the Holy Spirit, but there is human agency. And it's not hard to imagine the Apostle Paul thinking and praying and laboring to enumerate those blessings. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does it. He describes for us these blessings that are ours in Christ. And then having done that, it's not hard to imagine him taking a break as he reflects upon what it is that he's just written. It's breathtaking. And you've noticed, I'm sure, but he doesn't use the second person plural pronoun. He doesn't say you, but he says, he says us. He says 
we. These are blessings that Christ has given us. I too, I, the Apostle Paul, the one who was responsible for countless deaths, the deaths of Christians, men, women, children, I too have been loved, redeemed, adopted, and sealed. It's stunning. And to me, it's not hard to imagine that after a minute or five minutes or five hours of reflection on what he's just written, that then he collects his thoughts again and begins to write again. Maybe it's even the next day. But when he comes back to it, when he continues, we get these verses 15 to 23, and they flow out of those first verses. They are the, the kind of the so what of these breathtaking truths that he's enumerated for us. And if I could summarize these things, I'd summarize what you have in verses 15 to 23 in three ways. What follows is this, a prayer a response of prayer, which is prayer to God and thanksgiving for these Ephesian Christians. And then there's a reminder here, a reminder of their privileges. And then finally, there's a recognition of true power, of real power. So prayer, privilege, and power. First, this prayer. It is interesting and instructive, isn't it, that the gospel truths, the things that have captured the apostle's heart, as those gospel truths begin to penetrate more and more deeply into the world where he is ministering, it isn't surprising that his response to that is to pray, is to pray and to give thanks. And that's what happens here. It's his first response to these remarkable truths. It's almost a and a deeply ingrained response, an inevitable response. You see this sort of thing throughout his letters. In the letter that's a companion to the letter to the Ephesians, in Colossians, he begins, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then he goes on to mention their partnership with him in the gospel as he prays for them all the time. And then his first letter uh, to the Corinthian churches. Remember the Corinthian churches, those deeply dysfunctional Christian Corinthians, right? People who say, I'd, I'd like for our church to be like the first century church. You've heard this said before, haven't you? Who wants to be like that? But he prays for them, just as he prays for the Philippians and for the Ephesians. He gives thanks for them. So his gratitude is to God. His focus in his praying is God. And, and that's because he knows and is deeply persuaded. He knows it theologically, but he knows it experientially that it is by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that anybody is a Christian at all. Himself, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Christian, the, the Corinthians. It's only by the grace of God that anybody is a Christian at all. It's because of the work of the triune God, the Father loving, the Son securing redemption, the Spirit applying the benefits of that redemption. It's because of that gracious work 
that they are who they are, the beloved children of God. We know this, don't we? It isn't because they were smarter. It isn't because they were better bred. It isn't because they were more polite, superior in wisdom, superior in insight. It isn't because of where the decimal point was in their savings account balance. Paul is going to go on in chapter 2. We'll look at this next week. He's going to go on in chapter 2 to remind them that they were dead, that they were lifeless. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were apart from God and without hope in the world. No, no. The only thing that accounts for anybody being a Christian at all is this marvelous, redeeming, renewing Grace, the work of the triune God. And Paul rejoices in this. He celebrates this, makes his heart glad. So let me ask you a question as you, as you kind of look around the room. You think, you think your way around the room. Does this assembly cause you to rejoice? Does it cause you to celebrate? Every person here is a story. That's why testimonies are good things to hear, whether in formal or informal settings. Every person here is a story of God's personal initiative in rescuing and redeeming sinners. And that's a thing to be celebrated. You celebrate that grace as you gather every Sunday morning and sing together and pray together. This is a room filled with stories of God's grace. Then having thanked God, he then thanks God, thanks God for them, for these Ephesian Christians. Now I think we know this from the context. I think we know that the U's, the Y-O-U's of this paragraph are plural. We can't differentiate singular from plural in English apart from context. That is, unless you live in the South. And then you can, because we actually have three words, don't we, for, for you. We have you, which is singular. We have y'all, which is for a group of people. But then we have all y'all, for all y'all, right? The translation here in Ephesians chapter 1 is all y'all. It's the whole bunch of them. And I think this gives us some insight into how Paul sees Christians, individual Christians, how Paul would see us if he were, if he were here among us. He sees individual Christians as united to each other. He sees individual Christians as a community, as a family. John used that language earlier in the service. And I think this is important. Just, just as it's important to celebrate all of the stories, the individual stories that are here, it's so important to celebrate our corporate life, that we are family, that we are a congregation. We live in a culture that is, that is very consumerist and very individualistic, and it's a challenge sometimes to remember that each of us is part of a greater whole and that we're not in this thing alone. Now, it, it, it's not a Jesus and me thing. There's a personal dimension to it, but it's a Jesus and us thing. It is us 
together. One of the one of the great stories and themes of the whole Bible is the story and theme of the Exodus, of Israel's deliverance from their bondage in Egypt and their travels through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. That's not just a picture of them, it's a picture of us. And here's what you see as you think about that picture. You, you see the whole nation moving together, always together. And they move only as quickly as the slowest and weakest among them. They move only as, as quickly as the slowest and weakest among them. No one is left behind. We walk this Christian life together, the slow and the fast, the weak and the strong, the mature, the immature, the new Christian, the older Christian, and even the ones, and I trust that there are some like this in this room, those who aren't sure where they stand. We walk together, they walk together, they come alongside, and we support and encourage one another. You see that actually in this letter. You see how Paul talks about these Christians. In chapter four, they are one body, united in one spirit with one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, in this together. And you see it actually expressed by Paul as he asks the Ephesians to be praying for him. He seeks their prayers. He needs their prayers. Chapter six, verse 19. Pray also for me, that my mouth may be opened and that words may be given to me that I might proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel. So another question. I'm not here to cause trouble, just here to ask questions. Do you pray for your pastor? Do you pray for your pastors? Do you know that they need you? They need you, they need your prayers. One of the things that to me is the most significant thing about being in ministry is knowing that you have the prayers of your people. I've been doing this for almost 45 years. And through the years, people have prayed for Barb and me, they've prayed for our girls, they've prayed for our health, they've prayed for all kinds of things. But when they ask me, Pastor, what is it that I can pray for for you? My request, my first request, not the only, but my first request is the same as that of the Apostle Paul. Pray that God would give me words to make clear the mystery, the wonder, the beauty of the gospel. Pray for it week by week by week by week. And pray that the Spirit would come in power and would be pleased to give unction and would clothe the preacher so that it isn't the preacher who is seen and heard, but so that it is Jesus, the voice of Jesus that is heard. That's what you can pray for. I hope you do that. I hope you pray that for Chuck. I hope you pray it for all of the pastors here. And I hope you'll do it into the future. And let me just say one more thing. Not only that your pastor needs you, your pastors need you, they need your prayers. Let me say this one other thing. I think it's connected. When one of your pastors gives you evidence of the residue of sin in his life, which he will do, and I'm sure has. 
you, you, will, you will be aware, you'll become aware of the fact that your pastors have the residue of sin attached to them. They don't want it. They can't wait for the day when they're cleansed of it completely and it's gone, but it shows up, doesn't it? When it does, please, don't fire an angry email at them. Don't send a nasty text. Don't talk to another member. Don't talk to your neighbor about your sinful pastor. Pray harder. Pray harder. Because they need your prayers desperately. So do what Paul does. Pray for one another and pray for your pastors. And then Paul, after this, this thing about prayer, he moves on uh, to talk about privilege. And the praying is connected to the privilege. You see that. You see that he asks them to pray specifically. He tells them that he is praying specifically, that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. That's verse 17. Pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. Pray that for one another. Pray that you can see, really and truly see, not just know, but really and truly see what are your extraordinary privileges. And Paul mentions a couple of them here. He mentions this hope. Pray that your eyes will be opened to see the hope to which he has called you. Verse 17, verse 18. What is that hope? What is it that he's referring to when he refers to hope? Praying that the eyes of their understanding will be opened to see it. I think we get clues. Uh, Paul would have talked about it when he preached in Ephesus. That's why I refer to this as something of a reminder. He's reminding them of their privilege. But we get an idea of what Paul thinks about when he uses this word hope in his letter to the Romans. A couple of places, chapter 5 and chapter 8. The first two verses of chapter 5 of Romans, there's a, a rhythm, if you will, or a kind of a, a progression in those verses. He writes this, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Right, so there's a, there's a past dimension to what it is that Paul writes. We have been justified by faith, past tense, something that is done, something that is finished. It's what John referred to in the assurance of pardon, what John refers to in his first letter in chapter 2. There is, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, satisfying the judicial righteousness and wrath of God, there is a thing that is done, and you have received this declaration, not guilty, innocent, free of the charges that could be leveled against you. It's done. It's past. It's over. And so now there is peace. And then there is this introduction. There's this present reality. We have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. 
So grace is the world in which you live. It is the air you breathe. It is the animating principle that keeps you alive and that sustains you. It's where you dwell. You dwell in an environment of grace. But then there's a future thing, a tomorrow thing, the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And what is that? What is this thing? Well, it is your destiny. It's, it's where you are headed. It's where all of history is headed. It's the final resolution of all things. It's the day when you will finally be all that you want to be and all that you were created to be. You will be the God-glorifying, glory-embodying, image-bearing child of God that God designs you to be. That's where you're headed. In Romans 8, verses 20 and following, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we still groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What's your hope? This day that is coming, when you will be fully glorified. It was Irenaeus who said, the glory of God is man fully alive. That is what you will be. That is what your hope is. And it comes on that great day. And you wonder, don't you? You wonder, why am I restless? Why is enough never enough? Why is it that when Christmas comes, your kids are bored by 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Right? You're restless. And you'll never be anything but restless, content to a certain extent in your restlessness but never fully content and never without that restlessness until that great day when the king comes and everything sad comes untrue and the day of Isaiah 25 and 35 and Revelation 21, when that day comes, when death is no more, when sickness and grief are banished, when sorrow and sighing flee away, when the earth is filled with the glory of God and you are fully and finally gathered up into the perfect joy and glory of the one who has loved you with an everlasting love, that's when the restlessness will be gone and that is your hope, that day is coming. And there's the second thing, the second privilege. Paul prays that the hearts of the Ephesians will be enlightened to see, really to see, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the saints. Whose inheritance? 
the Father's inheritance. You have an inheritance. You see that in Ephesians 1, verse 11. You are the adopted son, the adopted daughter of the God of heaven and earth. And by virtue of your union with Jesus, by virtue of the fact that you are in him, everything that is his is yours eternally and forever. A new heaven and a new earth pulsating with life, lavished with God's blessing, permeated by shalom. You have an inheritance, but you are an inheritance as well. You are God's inheritance. And he calls it, Paul does, a rich inheritance that God is to have for himself. That person sitting next to you, that person in front of you, behind you, God's inheritance. One whom he owns and will have for himself. Makes sense, doesn't it, when you think of one of the most tender and intimate images in the New Testament, that of a bride. You are the bride of Christ. Guys, I know it's hard to sort of picture yourselves as a bride, but you are the bride of Christ, all of you together. I get to do weddings. I've gotten to do lots of weddings. The most fun thing about a wedding is when those doors open at the back of the room and the bride steps through that doorway, crosses that threshold. Everybody stands, everybody turns to look at the bride. I like to look at the groom. I like to see the smile on his face, the sense of anticipation, the sense of longing. They do this, maybe they do this in Uganda, Josh, I don't know. They do this thing in Tanzania where the groom and his best man actually sit in chairs at the front of the room with their backs to the congregation. And as the bride gets about halfway down, the groom gets out of his chair and goes to get his bride. I love that. Jesus is coming for you so that he can have you as his own, radiant, resplendent, glorified, perfect, the object of his eternal love and affection. He will have you for his own forever. You're his inheritance. Isn't that stunning? That leaves this, just this last thing very briefly, and we get to look at it more deeply next week because if you read 15 to 23 and then you go on into chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, you will see that what Paul has expressed about real power has been realized in your life. What is this real power, this recognition of power? Paul prays for these Ephesian Christians that they would recognize true power, real power, not false power but real and true power, not military power, not political power, not the power that comes with wealth, not exceptional giftedness. The Bible doesn't see these things as true and real power. And there's a good reason for that. Listen to Psalm 33, verses 16 to 18. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation because 
by its great might, it cannot rescue. Folks, Paul mentions two things here from which you have been rescued if you're a Christian this morning. Death and evil. And no king, no warrior, no war horse can deliver you from either one. But Jesus has. Jesus has. That's what he says. Verse 20, Paul wants us to see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. No president is king, past or present. Vladimir Putin is not king, never has been, never will be. All pretenders to the throne will be brought down. You read that this morning in Psalm 110. There is one king, and his name is Jesus. And he alone has power over death and has demonstrated that power over death. We've just come through Easter, and that's what we've celebrated. My friends, death is a real enemy. I trust you know this morning that it is a defeated enemy. And evil is defeated as well because evil has been crushed under the feet of Jesus. The promise of Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. The serpent crusher has come and he is crushing Satan under his feet. Paul mentions it in Colossians. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has crushed death and Jesus has crushed evil. And he has been enthroned at the Father's right hand for you. Did you see that? Set above all rule and all authority and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come for you. God is ruling. Jesus is reigning. He will have you for his bride. Death is conquered. Evil is defeated. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this great encouragement. Thank you for this great word. I pray for my friends here. I do pray that they would pray for each other and for their pastors. And I pray that together they would pray that their eyes would be opened to see what are their extraordinary privileges and to see what is this great power that you, Lord Jesus, have exercised in their behalf crushing death, crushing evil under your feet, even as you have redeemed them from their bondage in sin. We praise you, Jesus, and thank you as we pray in your name. Amen.